0: Uh, today we begin a new sermon series through the book of Titus and the book of Titus is a fitting letter for us to spend some time in as a church plant Uh, in fact you could call Titus a letter to a church plant uh, written by the master church planner, the Apostle Paul Uh, and we're gonna spend the next uh, few weeks walking through uh, this short letter but it's a letter packed full of foundational wisdom uh, for a healthy church but as I think about what it means to be a healthy church, and I think about the book of Titus uh, this week, I've been uh, thinking about how <clears throat> the book of Titus, if you will, uh, you could call it a, a manual of sorts for church planting. Um, how many of you like the phrase or the two words "assembly required"? Right? I'm, I'm fresh off the Christmas season, and as a father now of three children, I uh, wake up on Christmas and. Um, I, of course, get my cup of coffee, but I grab a box cutter uh, and a screwdriver and make sure that I have batteries nearby. Those things are essential uh, for Christmas. Um, and, and, of course, assembly required has been made popular um, no, no more than by Ikea, right? Uh, who, who doesn't love going and looking at all the beautiful things they have set up on the top story, you know, on that top floor, looking at everything and just imagining what it looks like in your place, But the only problem is you have to go down to the second floor and get everything in a box and then take it home and put it together yourself. And somebody at IKEA um, decided that it would be a good idea to take the words away uh, from the instruction manual, right, uh, for, for how to assemble it. So all you have is this jumble of numbers and letters and pictures and this like zoom out feature every now and then about how things are supposed to be put together and so of course, when you open it up, you take an obligatory picture to post online to ask people to pray for you as you begin the assembly uh, process and, and you dive in. Now, some of you are, are very particular and you probably take out all the pieces and you line it up by number and by alphabet so that you're ready when it comes to the proper instruction. I'm, I'm more of a just kind of a maverick. I open it up and, and I try to make sense of it as I go. The only problem is i get to step 20 and i realized i forgot a piece on step six right and so you have to begin to undo everything to put it together um, many many uh instruction lists or assembly required instructions can be somewhat humorous and and i tried to look up some some different examples uh of of ones you can find and, uh, and I, some of them were, were good examples some Uh, I think you just have to be there in the moment. It's like a good joke, you know, looking at the assembly required instruction. You just kind of have to be there for yourself to see what the experience is like. Well, the book of Titus is indeed a instruction manual of sorts for a church planning, but it's it's not one of those really difficult ones from Ikea. Uh, Fortunately, uh, God gave us words, uh, not just uh, letters and numbers and pictures to work with. And And it's a letter that helps us to understand what a healthy church is. And the background to the book of Titus is is that somewhere between Paul's imprisonment at the end of Acts and his death, which we know somewhere to be around 66 A.D. under the reign of Nero, sometime in between those two periods, Paul was released from prison for a period and began and continued to do his missionary work. And most likely, he and Titus, perhaps with others, but at least he and Titus end up on the island of Crete. Uh, and Crete is a, a place that has maybe about 20 or so cities on it. And Titus and Paul go about preaching the gospel, and many people come to faith in Christ. And now, the, the island of Crete and the cities that represented it, uh, Crete wasn't exactly you know just a fertile place for churches to be started. Uh, in fact, Paul will quote uh, from one of the Cretans' own philosophers, a man that we know by the name of Epidemius, <clears throat> And, and he says in verse 11, Paul quoting from him, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, so, so Crete wasn't, wasn't exactly at the top of the list where you would go thinking that people are just waiting to hear the good news of Jesus and uh, eager to respond to life in Christ. In fact, it was, it was a difficult place marked by people who weren't interested in God. In fact, who were interested in themselves and living for their pleasure and their pleasure alone. And, and I think as we come to this letter uh, and we think about our own situation, our own context as a, as a church here in Ann Arbor and Ipsy, uh, we, we find ourselves in a place that's also not just eager and waiting for people to hear about the gospel. But as we look at the book of Titus and we see how God uses his people to take his gospel into hard places, we're reminded that God can be at work in difficult places. No one and no place is beyond God's grace. And I think just as an encouragement to us, I don't know, perhaps as we've been challenging you to think about your one, maybe that voice of cynicism and doubt creeps in and says, I mean, they're they're not interested. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to know about Christ. I know how the conversation's going to go. Sometimes you think, how in the world am I going to see my neighbors, my co-workers, my classmates come to faith in Christ? God, how how can you use me? I barely can get five words out when I'm talking about you. How how are you going to use me to share the gospel with someone? And I just remind you as we come to the book of Titus that no one and no place is beyond God's grace. And God isn't beyond using you and I to advance His gospel. Because that's exactly what happens on the island of Crete. And these new believers that respond to the gospel uh, need to be gathered together into churches. And so what Paul does is he leaves Titus behind as he continues on, perhaps heading to Spain, which we know from the book of Romans is where he desired to go uh, and and continue his work of advancing the gospel. He leaves Titus, and we'll look at this next week, it says in verse 5, "...to put things in order to appoint leaders in churches and to establish these churches with sound doctrine and a strong commitment to the gospel." And so Titus is left behind to do this work and Paul writes to him to encourage him to remind him of what he's been left there to do and to, uh, to to give him the framework that he needs to carry out that work and by extension though it's written to Titus it's a book that's meant it's a letter that's meant to be read to the churches uh, to, to help them understand what was essential for them as a new church. And so indeed Titus is uh, as one Uh, Author said, an apostolic manual for church planting, a blueprint for planting and building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. That's my prayer for TCC, that God would take the seed that he planted uh, here over a year ago and he would continue to enable and strengthen us to be a church that thrives for his glory. And look, if a church can survive a pandemic, I'm convinced that a church can survive just about anything uh, and indeed, um, God's church will survive much more uh, until he comes again. But when, when we look at the book of Titus, when I say it's a, a manual uh, for church planting, um, I think it gives us uh, maybe six, we could say, essentials for every church. These six essentials are the things that we're going to look at uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, Paul is going to remind Titus about the importance of faithful leadership in the local church. He's going to unpack the qualifications for elders uh, that are meant to to lead the church and to lead, particularly in, in preaching and overseeing the church and shepherding the people that God has entrusted uh, to them. The church is is to be founded on sound doctrine. Already, even uh, amongst these believers on the island of Crete, there is there are some who are advocating. Uh, false teaching, a teaching that would take people away from the gospel. Uh, And Paul is going to remind them of what sound teaching is and the importance of sound teaching. He's going to talk about discipleship and the importance of what it means to relate to one another in the body of Christ, to help encourage one another in the faith, to to seek one another's spiritual good Uh, in our discipleship that we would adorn uh, the doctrine of God our Savior, putting on display through our lives and through our discipleship the gospel. Paul is going to uh, to ground all of this in a gospel clarity, an understanding of what the gospel is, why it's good news, and and what it means for the grace of God to have appeared and brought salvation to all people, as he says in Titus 2.11. He's he's going to remind us that the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared when Jesus was born. Uh, and, and, And through His death and resurrection, we are saved not by works done by us, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and re- renewal of the Holy Spirit as he says in Titus 3. And from a gospel clarity we see the call upon the church towards personal holiness. That God has called us as His people uh, to pursue a life of godliness. And we're going to see maybe the theme that uh, that encompasses the entire book is that the gospel produces godliness. Uh, and, The book of Titus Paul returns to that again and again we see it in Titus 2 11 through 14 and even into chapter 3 and then closely connected to our personal holiness isn't just that we would be uh, pious unto ourselves but that we would be devoted to good works the gospel creates a people not only who grow in godliness but who are devoted to good works time and time again Uh, Even in chapter 3, Paul is going to emphasize to be ready for every good work, to devote ourselves to good works. Uh, And and to conclude the the book as a whole in verse 14, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. These are the six essentials that I think should be true of every church and true for a new church that that as we think about what we're to do and what we're to be about, what we're to prioritize, uh, one of the things as Pastor Chris and I talk and we think about what it means uh, to, to lead our church in the midst of these times, these are, these are some guardrails, some foundations for us to think about. What, what should we be prioritizing? what should we be pursuing? And I believe as we walk through them that God will help us not only to know these six essentials, but to apply them and pursue them. ...here in the life of Treasuring Christ Church. But today we come to the introduction. And it's you know, easy to, to read through the introductions rather quickly... Uh, ...because it contains often um, <clears throat> you know, uh, familiar information. If you look at Paul's letters, many of his letters have very brief introductions. Paul introduces himself as an apostle uh, by the will of God, according to the grace of God... Uh, and then he says to the church at Corinth, to the church at Colossae, whatever the case may be, uh, grace and mercy to you in the, fa- in the name of the Father and uh, in Christ Jesus our Savior, and on he goes. Well, the book of Titus is actually the second longest introduction to all of Paul's letters. Uh, the only book that's longer than Paul's introduction here in Titus is the book of Romans. And when you think about that, it's pretty... Astounding to think that the book of Romans is some 16 chapters, probably three times as long as the book of Titus, and it has uh, just a little bit longer of an introduction than the book of Titus. Um, Paul gives us in this introduction a glimpse of his own calling as an apostle and fleshes it out, as well as his relationship with Titus. And I think we can look at this introduction and pull from, uh, from Paul's introduction some lessons I've called from a church planner. Five lessons from a church planner. The first thing I want us to see uh, as we look at verse 1 is the call to serve with humility. We see this as Paul introduces himself by two titles. Paul, it says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase apostle is one, uh, the the title apostle is one that Paul uses often. In fact, it's, it's the most frequent Uh, title that he uses as he introduces himself in his letters. An apostle is one uh, who has been um, sent by the risen Christ to declare the gospel. The apostles were those who had been called by Christ, also known as the Twelve, who had been with him throughout his ministry and seen his life, his death, and his resurrection. There are a few others in the New Testament that are called apostles, like Paul, one who was uh, called an apostle after um, the, the ministry of Christ as he's radically saved by Christ on the road to Damascus. If you read about this in Acts 9, as he's going to persecute Christians, Jesus appears to Paul and calls him to himself. And Paul goes from being a terrorist of the church to being an apostle of the church, declaring the gospel. Um, and, and he's called by Christ. And a few others share this unique calling of apostles. The apostles, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2:20, were foundational to the church. And they're not just foundational and like they're figureheads of the church, but they played a particular role in that they passed on the gospel. And it was through the apostles especially that we have the bulk of what is the New Testament. And so it's important to note here that Paul uh, is writing from a position of authority. To speak as an apostle is to speak as one with authority by the risen Christ. But isn't it interesting that he doesn't begin with that? Paul is an apostle, that's the the office that God has given him, but how does it begin? How does Paul start off? What's his first leg that he puts forward? He puts forward that he is a servant of God. Paul is an apostle, but the way he went about carrying out his role was as a servant. And the reason we can see in this the lesson of serving with humility is that it's true for us, no matter what role we carry in God's church. First and foremost, we carry it as a servant of God. And I think it's it's interesting to to think about this. If, you, if you've ever gotten a letter um, back in the day, you know, you got a note passed to you or uh, maybe somebody wrote you a postcard. I recently had somebody write me a postcard. It would be strange if you got a letter from a friend and they introduced themselves to you by their title, right? If your friend wrote you a letter and said, you know, hi, Natalie, this is... Uh, Michael, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church, and uh, well, obviously, right? Uh, you would know that Paul is writing to his coworker and friend, companion in the ministry, and he's identifying himself by these roles. And the reason is, is because though Paul is writing Titus, he's writing Titus on behalf of the church. And what we see him doing for Titus, and by extension for the churches that Titus speaks to, and by further extension to us, is that we have a pattern for how we are to carry out ministry. That we're to carry it out as a servant. This reminds us of the words of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Mark nine thirty five. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Serve with humility. Warren Wiersbe, in his book on being a servant, he says, The church is the body of Christ on earth. Taking the place of the Savior is returned to heaven. And our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that must be our attitude. Sacrifice and service to the glory of God. That's the calling upon every Christian, no matter what role we have in the church, or even by extension in the world, that we function as a servant of God. So after this brief introduction, still in chapter 1, Paul goes on to, to describe his purpose of apostleship. Notice, notice what it says in the, in by, by uh, the second half of verse 1. Paul says, A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So what he's doing in the second half of verse 1 is telling you his purpose or his goal as an apostle. He's saying, this is what drives me. This is what defines my work as an apostle. And, and in doing so, we have his ministry uh, statement, so to speak. You know, what drove Paul was twofold. Uh, it was salvation, the faith of God's elect, and sanctification, their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. From this, we see that we're to stay focused on the goal. And Paul tells us his goal as an apostle and as an apostle who writes to establish the church, these uh, this goal, this twofold goal, is what should animate us as a church to keep our eye on on what God has called us to first and foremost. And you could break it down in this way: our two our twofold goal is saving faith, that God sovereignly saves those who believe in Jesus, and secondly, we'll see. That our second part of our twofold goal is to grow in godliness. But Paul gives us in that brief statement that he uh, his apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He gives us two undeniable truths. He says God sovereignly saves whom he wills. And he says that God saves those whom repent of their sin and believe in him. Those two things are true. And Paul sees no contradiction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, as we think about what God's sovereignty and salvation means, I don't think I could say it any better than the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who wrote, He saves man by grace, speaking of God, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? You maybe have had that question. How can God be sovereign and and yet we have responsibility to respond to the gospel. Spurgeon said, My dear brethren, I never reconcile friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. God works in such a way that he sovereignly saves those whom he wills, but in no way is it a violation of man and woman's responsibility to respond to him. In fact, you could say it this way, the truth of God's sovereignty in our salvation, I think, does at least two things. First, it comforts us. And the reason I say it comforts us is because I think to talk about God's sovereignty in our salvation uh, really only makes sense on the other side of salvation. And in fact, that's what it's meant to be, as it's meant to be a comfort to the believer. I don't know any believer who's come to faith in Christ and who thinks to themselves... Yeah, I'm really glad that I had the idea first to pursue God. I'm, I'm really glad that, um, that within me, I figured out that I needed God to save me from my sins. I'm so glad that I chose God before He chose me. No, no, no believer says that because as we recognize the grace of God and the greatness of our sin, and the greatness of our Savior, we say, God loved me first. God pursued me when I wasn't pursuing Him. And when you look back on the, on the path of your life, I, I think back, I became a believer almost 20 years ago when I was a teenager. And, and even from the time I became a Christian at 14, I could see in the years leading up to me becoming a believer how God was at work, the different people that He had placed into my life, the different invitations I had had, to come to church, the different people who came by my house and, and just wanted to, to invite me to church or invite me to an event that they were doing, the, the friends who would, who would lovingly try to awkwardly share their faith with me, even though they didn't really know what to do other than to say, Michael, don't cuss when we're playing basketball. And, uh, and you know, do you know about God's love for you? Um, all of those things were working. And God leading me to himself. And when God opened my eyes to see him, I didn't think, wow, I'm pretty incredible that I figured this out. I thought, wow, what an amazing God that he loved me first. The truth of God's sovereignty and our salvation comforts us. But secondly, as a believer, it should motivate us. See, some say teaching God's sovereignty and salvation will stifle the motivation of the believer. Why share our faith if God will save whom he wills? Right? I mean, I think anyone who's thinking about this logically could ask that question. Well, Paul, who clearly teaches God's sovereignty in our salvation, it had the opposite effect on him. It actually compelled him to to pursue preaching the gospel. And and, and we see, as we think about uh, what it means that God is sovereign in salvation, when Paul preached the gospel, those whom God had chosen believed. So we ask ourselves, how do I know if I'm God's elect? You know if you've repented of your sin and believed in Christ. How do I know if somebody else is God's elect? You know if you've shared the gospel with them and they've said, Yes, I need God's forgiveness and I want the hope of eternal life that can only be found in Him. You see, Paul shows us that we don't know who's, who can be called God's elect, but what we do know is that when the gospel is preached and people believe, God saves whom He wills. He said He Some people might say, I can't accept that there's a God who chooses some and not others. And indeed, when we think about God's sovereignty and salvation, we have to step back and say, wow, what a wonderful mystery. God's ways are higher than our ways. And yet, I would put my hope any day in a God who chooses on the basis of his gracious character than to put my hope in a man or a system that chooses on the basis of man's changing opinion. God is sovereign and he's put before us the goal of seeing people come to saving faith in Christ. Paul, Paul lays this out perhaps most clearly in Romans 10, 10 through 17. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What good news. Just call on Him. And you'll be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Notice what Paul's beginning to do. And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, "The Lord, who, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us? And Paul reminds us, faith comes from hearing and hearing. The word of Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Will be saved. But how will they hear. Unless someone tells them. Paul has. God has put the responsibility. Of declaring the gospel. In the hands of men and women. Like you and I. And the goal of the church. Is to to continually pursue. Seeing people come to saving faith. In Christ. But that doesn't sum up the total goal of the church it's not just about people coming to faith in christ but it's about growth in godliness god's truth applied to all of life produces godliness <clears throat> you see those who come to saving faith in christ enter into this new relationship with god but that relationship is to be marked by a growth in the knowledge of the truth uh, the the term as it says here that their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Our Christian faith is to lead us somewhere. It's to produce something in us. To uh, When we become believers, we, we're, we're not just content with uh, with gratitude that God has saved us, but we want to press into knowing Him. You see, the, the Christian life isn't just, um, okay, well, I can mostly do life my way and add Jesus to it and, and feel better about myself and uh, and have a group of people that I can hang out with. Like it's not an addition type thing. To, to come to Christ means that we enter in uh, to the life that he has given us. And it's marked by allowing all of our life to come under the authority of the knowledge of his truth. The knowledge of his word and, and the truth of the gospel. To, to say the knowledge of the truth isn't just to, to speak of the, the summary of the gospel. But it's to speak of the totality of the Christian faith applied to our lives. And it says that this accords with godliness. Maybe I think in in the NIV translation it says that this leads to godliness. That's the the right implication. It's not just that the knowledge of the truth is fitting for godliness, but it's that the knowledge of truth should produce, it should lead to godliness in the life of the Christian. And godliness isn't defined by um, what other people say you should wear and you should do and not do. Godliness is defined by obedience to God through His Word and reflecting the fullness of His character in our life. Say so that again. Godliness is defined by obedience to God through His Word. That's why the knowledge of truth is vital. And reflecting the fullness of His character in our lives. Paul makes this point in, in Titus 2, 11-12. He says, "...the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people." And notice what he does next. That grace which brings salvation, the grace that's found in Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose victoriously from the dead on the third day. Grace upon grace upon grace. It leads to salvation and it trains us. Grace trains, it equips us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So we are to, to grow in godliness as we submit ourselves to God's word, walk in obedience to God's word, asking God to reflect His character in our lives. That's why I've loved the last week as we've been praying through uh, the, the character of God. If you've been using the prayer guide, uh, you've, you've been, we've reflected on some of uh, God's attributes, incommunicable attributes that are true only of Him, just praising God for who He is. As well as those which are true of God and can be reflected in the life of the believer. Today we reflect on God's goodness. A God who is good. The fullness of who He is. All that He does is good. Who He is is good. We can rest in Him. That this should produce in us as we, as we reflect on who God is. That it should be produced in us a reflection of His character in our life. I, I think of it this way. <clears throat> um, some of you may remember, um, you know, a year or so ago, we used to, there were these places called gyms. Um, and you could actually, you could go into them. Um, and there are other people that you stood by who breathed on you um, uh, very heavily at, while you worked out. Um, an interesting thing, I do this now in my house uh, is, is kind of primarily how we do it. So it's just the, the TV looking at me now. Uh, but it's the difference in going to work out. You guys know these people. I hope I'm not talking about any of you. Uh, they go to work out and they mostly go to work out because of the ability to like stand in the mirror and like reflect, you know, like they're doing their curls and they're, you know, they sideways and uh, just imagining, you know, I, I guess they're doing that for themselves to encourage them in their progress. I know it's important to have goals and make progress. Um, and I've kind of felt bad. Uh, for them that they haven't been able to do that at the gym and then I realized that's what Instagram is for. Uh, You just post those pictures on Instagram. Um, But there's that person who goes to the gym basically for the, the satisfaction of knowing that they're making progress in their goals, right? And then there's the soldier who goes to boot camp to train and equip to be ready to be called into battle whenever is necessary. The The growth in godliness that God's Word describes isn't isn't just a training in the gym to, to look good and feel good about yourself. It's growing in the knowledge of truth to be ready to go into battle whenever you're called upon. And as a Christian, we're called to be ready to go into battle every day. Growing in godliness. The Christian life should be defined by an ever-increasing desire to grow in the knowledge of truth and an ever-increasing commitment for that knowledge to change the way we live. Saving faith and growth in godliness. This is the goal. This is what we keep before us as a church. We want people to come to faith in Christ. We want believers to be built up into Christ, to reflect Him in every way. Paul moves on from verse 1 to verse 2 and he transitions from talking about the goal of his apostleship. If you notice in verse 2, it says, really, uh, the basis of what he does is rooted in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So here we see this third lesson from the Apostle Paul and that's to rest in the hope of eternal life everything he did as an apostle his preaching of the gospel his making disciples was done within the context of this rock-solid confidence that we will spend eternity with god and this is what motivates and, and and encourages christians all around the world who endure suffering and persecution i'm talking about real suffering and persecution where pastors are being arrested and Believers are being put in jail, or for fear of death, they have to go underground. I'm I'm talking about where, if you have a Bible, it'll get confiscated. I'm not talking about people not liking what we what we say. I'm talking about your life being on the line as a follower of Christ. What is it that motivates those believers? What is it that compels them to pursue Christ when your life is on the line? It's the hope of eternal life. What is it that encourages Christians towards faithfulness in difficult places? Whether it be in their work or their family or school or ministry. What is it that helps believers to maintain a perspective in the midst of a pandemic when everything seems turned upside down? Not to lose our cool and to throw in the towel. It's the hope of eternal life. The one who will make all things right. And one day when all wrong things will become undone, is the author of eternal life. The one we trust is the one who gives eternal life. And one day, we'll spend eternity with him fully in his presence. And what is the, what is the confidence that this eternal life we can really hope in, right? Like um, <clears throat> some of us maybe are hoping... Uh, that maybe the Detroit Lions will win a few games next year with a new coach, right? That hope isn't very secure, though the new coach looks better perhaps than uh, some of others. Uh, but our hope isn't like that, and I really don't hope, they'll, I don't have much hope for the Lions. Anyway, uh, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, which uh, we have one of the, for Christmas we got um, an Alexa with the screen, uh, I guess so it can spy on us, I don't know. Um, you say things and then ads appear, you know, if you notice that. Uh, But uh, it had, for like two weeks, it had this news story that popped up that said uh, the Dallas Cowboys celebrate 25 years of mediocrity. Um, (laughs) I was like, wow, that's true. And yet, man, you had to put that up there for two weeks. Uh, That hope isn't very secure. The hope of eternal life is very secure because it's founded on the character and the integrity of God. A God who does not lie. This is our confidence that God has promised eternal life and God doesn't lie. Rest in the hope of eternal life. Show me a people who don't fear death and who aren't bound by the praise of people. And I'll show you a people who have set their hope on eternal life. Which is really to say they have set their hope on a God who doesn't lie. When our hope is in Him, we can be faithful in the present no matter what comes. But we must press deeper here because Paul says that this hope is rooted in God's character and integrity who never, who never lies, and then notice this, who promised before the ages began. He promised it before the ages began. Think about this. God promised our salvation before the ages began. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, Even as He chose us in Him, listen, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 1, 8-9 says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Paul's writing to Titus' uh, compatriot named Timothy. He says, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, Listen, which He gave us, in Christ Jesus, before the ages began. Theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption. That God in eternity past, that the Father promised to His Son, in eternity past, a people for Himself. And on the basis of that promise, Christ was incarnated and crucified for those whom the Father had promised to the Son. Listen to Jesus reflect upon the inner workings of the Triune God in John 17 as jesus prays the high priestly prayer there in verses 24 through 26 he says father i desire that they also speaking of believers whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world o righteous father even though the world does not know you i know you and these know you that you have sent me i made known to them your name And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is is it saying that God has secured our redemption before the ages began? It says that God Almighty, who upholds the universe, who creates merely by his word, made a promise in eternity past that had your name on it and that had my name on it. I don't know if you've ever had somebody important call you out of the blue or check up on you or remember your name. You're like, wow, you remembered me. Like, you, you knew that that was happening in my life today, and you reached out. And I, I didn't expect that you would do that. Just, just think about that on an infinitely larger scale. That God's plan had our name on it. He thought of us before the foundations of the earth, that we might be with Him for all eternity rest in the hope of eternal life and a God who does not lie and a God who promised before the ages began but the fourth thing he does here is somewhat unique because he goes on to say that this hope has come about it's been manifested he says at the end of uh, at the beginning of chapter three at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our savior now what's unique about this is that Paul often will talk about how um, the, the plan of redemption was manifested in Christ. In Christ's coming. Um, <clears throat> and, and bringing about redemption and the appearing of Christ. In fact, he does that in, in chapter 3, in Galatians 4.4. 4, it says, at the proper time, Christ came. Well, here it says, at the proper time, the gospel was preached. So that the way in which the hope of eternal life gets out to the world is yes, through the coming of Christ, that's true, but it's particularly through the preaching of the gospel. And here we see our fourth lesson, to share the gospel. So the, the good news of God's redemption has been manifested in Christ, but here Paul puts the emphasis on the preaching of the gospel. It's similar to what we saw when we think about what, how we're called to serve. Christ came... He laid down his life as a ransom for many and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and we wait for his promised return. But how, how will people see Jesus today? How, how will people encounter Jesus in our city, in our lives? It's through us. Yes, it's through us living our lives for Christ. But I can assure you there are many people who are not followers of Christ who live better lives than many Christians do so we, yes we must live it in our actions but particularly we must share it with our words because somebody else may live better than you but there is no better Savior there is no other Savior than Jesus Paul shows us that we're called to share the gospel we, we get this word the proclamation of the gospel and we think well that's what you're doing right Michael you're proclaiming the gospel preaching the gospel Yes, but Paul would preach the gospel in the synagogues and then he would go in houses, around dinner tables. As he went about his day, Philip, as he uh, awkwardly ran up along the Ethiopian eunuch in, a, in his carriage and said, May I join you? There they're sharing the gospel. That's the calling upon the church, to share the gospel. Eternal life is brought to light through preaching. The eternal promises of God, one commentator said, appear when we share the gospel. Eternal life appears in our town when we speak about Jesus. We're called to share the gospel. And then finally, we're called to make disciples. As Paul speaks to Titus in verse 4, he calls Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In many ways, of course, this isn't a command that Paul is giving us, but it's the fruit of making disciples that we see in Paul's greeting to Titus. He calls Titus a true son in a common faith. Titus likely came to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. At the very least, Paul, um, <clears throat> Titus grew in the faith as he served with, with Paul on his missionary journeys. We know that Titus was sent to multiple places. He was useful in Corinth. Uh, in the, in the work of the church at Corinth. We know after Paul was arrested in 2 Timothy, he says that Titus is continuing the work of the gospel. Having left Crete, he's going to Dalmatia. Titus was committed to the gospel because he saw the gospel worked out in the life of Paul. <clears throat> yes, it's just a greeting. Yes, it's just Paul talking to a fellow co-worker in the gospel. But it's a reminder to us of how the gospel spreads. It spreads as we invest our lives in other people. And that's what God continues to do today. As God's people share the gospel and make disciples, the faith is passed. Can you call anyone your son or your daughter in the faith? Has your faith, my faith, progressed beyond ourselves? This is why we asked Even this year, a commitment to ask us, who's, who's your one? Who is it that you're going to pursue? Who's your Titus that you're going to pursue for the sake of the gospel? In the end, we see in this introduction a pattern for us. We see the beginning of faith, saving faith, the faith of God's elect. The progress of the faith as God's people grow in godliness. And then we see the multiplication of faith. As we pass on the gospel and raise up others, To continue that work. That's what God is calling us to as a church. He's calling us to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our community. Through this book, thinking of these essentials for every church, my prayer is that God continues to deepen us in our commitment to Him. uh, Deepen us in our commitment to the knowledge of the truth and applying that knowledge as we would work it out in our life, and that it wouldn't just be worked out in the community of believers here at TCC, but it would spill over into the way we interact in our community. That, as Paul says, we would be devoted to good works and putting on display, adorning, as he says in Titus 2, the gospel and the glory of God, the doctrine of God our Savior.